your Bibles, open them up to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, forgot it out in the car, or don't own a Bible, under a seat close by in front of you, black hardcover copy of God's Word, please take that out, 2 Peter chapter 3. Continue our study now through this this second letter that Peter wrote to the early church. And as we have talked each time as we've studied through this, understand that Peter is writing an impassioned letter to this early church. He loves them. He uses the term beloved. He loves them. He loves God. He loves God's people. But he's also concerned. He knows what's ahead. He knows what's ahead for him. He knows that his time is very short, that within a very short period of time, he's going to go on to his execution and on to be with the Lord. But he also knows what lies ahead for the world and for the church. So he writes a letter of encouragement. If you'll remember back in chapter 1, we talked about the fact that he, he wants us to know all that we have in this relationship with Christ, these, these glorious and magnificent promises that we have. That we, have, that we have grace and peace multiplied upon us. That God deals in a totally different mathematical category than we understand. And we have these magnificent promises. We have these things that lie ahead for us, but also promises for us right now. And then he talked about the response and responsibility that we have because of this talked in chapter 1 as well about the fact that one of the greatest blessings that we have while we are here is his living word that, that is truly his word. It's not man-made, it's, it's God-breathed. And we, we have access to, to God in his word anytime. What a blessing that is. And then in chapter 2 last week, we talked about the fact that not only though is this an encouragement, but it's also a challenge and a warning because as time goes on, and he's ta we'll talk again now in the last days, these times that we live in, there are false teachers, there are false prophets, there are false teachings all around us, and we need to be careful. We need to be so grounded in God's word that we can see it coming from miles away. Well, now we continue chapter 3. Peter says, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I want to note, first of all, again, beloved, I love you guys, and, and I want to encourage you in this. But he says, I'm, I'm stirring up. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that stirring within us. And that's his desire in this, not to leave us, we're all casual and everything, no, to stir up. But he says something interesting, stirring up your sincere mind. Now, that word sincere, interesting word in the original language, it meant to take something and in order to prove it genuine, in order to prove it real, in order to prove it pure, you take it out into the bright light. And back then, the bright light that you would take it out into is the sunlight. You'd take it outside into the direct sunlight so that you could examine it and see that it is pure, that it is genuine, that it's, that it's real. Now, when you take that word and you place it before mind, Pure mind. Can I just ask how many of you have a pure mind? How many of you how, how many of you haven't had any impure thoughts this week or even this morning? N none of us. None of us. So when I when I, I it's one of those things that makes me kind of stop as I'm studying the words in this and thinking, okay, brought brought into the brought into the sunlight and 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 exposed my mind, I, I fall out. So we may as well just close this whole thing up and go home because he's writing to those with a sincere mind. Well, Praise God, 
Our, our minds aren't brought into the sunlight, S-U-N light. They're brought into the S-O-N light, the sunlight. Because of what he did for us. We don't stand in our own righteousness, our own purity, but his. His. And he is speaking again to born-again believers that have this purified mind because of Jesus. Because of the, because of the Son. But notice that, he's, that he goes on. He says, I'm stirring this up by way of reminder. Guys, we need to stay grounded in some things because though our minds are innocent, if you would, they're not impervious. Though, though we are vindicated and victorious, we are still vulnerable. And he says, guys, because of this, I am stirring you up again by way of reminder. I'm gonna remind you of some things, things you already know. And he says, stay in the word of God. Stay in the truth of God's word. Regularly be in it. He, he points to the, the writings of the Old Testament prophets. He points to the, the words of Jesus in the gospels. And he points to the writings of the apostles, the letters that, that again, preserved by the Holy Spirit for us today. Now, back when the time that, that Peter wrote this, not all of those letters were even written yet, much less accumulated and bound up nice and neat for us. But they were scripture. They were truth. And they were these, some of these letters were being passed around. Look ahead to verse 15. He speaks of the writings of Paul. He says, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. He's saying, guys... Just like we talked about a few verses earlier, a little bit earlier in the letter, that, that God inspired through the Holy Spirit the prophets and the writers of, of God's word. He says also, it's not, you don't read these letters because Paul is some brilliant man. You read it because, because the wisdom was given to him from above. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these letters. That's what makes them stand out. And notice he continues, verse 16, as also in, your, in his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter clearly calling here, right away here, even in the early church, that some of the writings that were circulating of Paul's were scripture. Scripture, same word he used back in verse 20 and 21, speaking of the scripture being inspired by God, not man. But he says also something interesting. He says, be careful because some people will take these things, the difficult things to understand, and we talked about this last week, and they will distort them. That word distort, interesting again word, it means to twist, it means to rent, it actually means to torture. The noun of that was the word that was used to describe the rack, that torturous device where people are stretched on it and even dislocating limbs and all of that to try to get to them to confess something, even if it's not true. Torture something out of it. And that's what he's saying here. People will twist and torture God's word to make it say whatever they want to say. Be careful of that, he's telling us. We need to, again, be so grounded in God's word, reading it, studying it, knowing it, meditating on it. Guys, God's word is the source of what we have. It's the source of our faith. The Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God. It's not only 
the source, it's the sustenance, 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17. We've read this verse a few times over the last couple of weeks. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Guys, it's so important that we're in the word. It's the source of what we build our our faith on. It's the sustenance that that trains us in righteousness. It gives us our nourishment, but it's also our security. Again, as we talked last week in in chapter 2, and we're going to continue on now in in chapter 3, there are false teachers out there, false doctrines out there. And if we're not careful, if we are not secure in this rock-solid foundation that we have, in the truth of God's word, we can drift. We can, our minds can start going. And though we might not sell out wholesale to what some of these people are teaching, we can have our minds corrupted and and start giving hedging a little bit. Start saying, well, you got a good point there or whatever, and kind of start hedging away from the truth of God's word. And Peter says, be careful. And he tells us, verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter says, the last days, which speak of the time from Christ's ascension into heaven until his coming again, in the last days. We are in the last days. And he says, during that time frame, mockers will come and mock what you believe. Anybody experience that? Anybody experience what Peter is telling us we will experience? Oh, you Christians have been saying that forever. Jesus is coming back, yeah. Yeah, you've been saying that for 2,000 years. Where is he? Mocking, right? I don't believe all of that prophecy stuff. If anybody ever says that to you again, say, dude, you just fulfilled prophecy. Peter said you were going to say that. (laughs) Let him chew on that a little bit. (laughs) Mockers will come mocking. What do they mock? Notice what Peter tells us they mock right out. Two things, two specific things amongst many others, but two very specific things, creation and the flood. The creation, God creating everything out of nothing. They mock that and the flood. Why? Well, first of all, if they, if they accept creation, they have to accept a creator. And if they accept a creator, they have to accept the fact that they are accountable to that creator. The flood, they mock that because if they, if they accept the flood, they have to accept why the flood came, and that was for judgment for sin. And if they do that, they have to accept the fact that they are liable for their sin. They don't want accountability. They don't want liability, so they reject both. They say, that's crazy. That's nonsense. They mock. If they admit creation, they have to admit that they have to answer to the God of creation. If they admit to the flood, they have to realize that they have to answer for their sin. They don't want to do that. So why do they mock? Clearly, it tells us here. They will tell you that it's because they have superior intellect to you. (laughs) They've moved way beyond 
that faith stuff and you know their 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 mind they just can't reason with that they can't they will tell you it's because of their intellect it has nothing to do with their intellect peter tells us following their own lusts it has nothing to do with intellectual superiority it has everything to do with carnal depravity jesus tells us the same thing turn to john chapter 3 John chapter 3. Now we're going to begin in verse 16. We probably all could recite that from memory. But it's what Jesus says after this that points exactly to what Peter is talking about here. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus is saying the same thing here that Peter is saying. It's not because they have some intellectual superiority. It's because they prefer their sin. They prefer the darkness of their sin than the the holiness of the light. And they reject it outright. And back in our text, Peter is talking here, it's not just depravity. It's not just that they're depraved. It's also that it's a deliberate choice. The wording here, verse 5, when they maintain this, that word maintain is thelo, and it deals with the will. It deals with resolve, a determination, a determined effort. It's not some passive word. And it's two words put together here, thelo, and the next one is lanthano, and it's, it's, it's uh, uh, translated escapes in our Bible. It has escaped their notice. That means to be hidden or without knowledge. So what Peter is saying is it's a deliberate act on their part to be without the knowledge that they need. Now, if you have a New Living Translation, the translators t- translated it. They deliberately forget If you have a King James translation, it says they willingly are ignorant. And that's the the crux of what Peter is saying. It's not just that their minds are depraved and their lives show it. It's that they're deliberately doing it. Now, Paul echoes this. Romans chapter 1. Turn with me there real quickly. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They have the truth, but they suppress it in their sinfulness. They push it away because of their sin. And it clearly states that God's wrath is is destined for that. That is coming for them. But it says, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. They know it. God made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Paul saying, again, the same thing that Peter is saying. This is a deliberate act, a choice to renounce the truth, to cover it up in order to continue to live in darkness. Why am I making such a big point about this? Why is Peter making such a big point about this? Because so often, I hear it all the time, I see it all the time. Unfortunately, I see it even in churches. We as Christians make concessions to these people because we feel, oh, you know what, they, they kind of have a good point there. I don't know how to answer that, you know, and how, how, do, how, do, how do we deal with that? And I'm, I'm come, I'll come right out and talk about this. We face it everywhere around us today by, because of what they, evolution. That, that, is, that is the byproduct of this as it's continued on through time. We face it everywhere. It's taught in all of our schools, all of our public schools as fact. It's taught in all of our public schools as fact. Science. Let me give you the definition of science that scientists use. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Evolution is not science. That by their own definition, they say they have to be able to observe it and in an experiment basically reproduce it, be able to show it. They can't do that. Charles Darwin himself even said, now that we know what we're looking for, we're going to find transitional fossils everywhere that show transitions from one species to another. Yet today, not one has ever been found. They, they, their argument is, well, we've watched bacteria turn into other bacteria. Great, still bacteria. <laughs> you know, they, they observe beaks changing, but the, it's still a bird. It's still the same kind of bird. It's just, it's beak changed because of the environment it's in. And by the way, it changed back when the environment changed back. It didn't evolve into anything. And again, the reason I am stating this is so many people kind of start hedging a little bit and, and giving little concessions and, and drifting. And that is what Peter is telling us. You can't do. Don't do that. Stay firm in what we know is the truth. We as Christians define faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Guys, evolution is not science. Evolution is faith. And the only difference between them fitting evolution into the definition we have in Hebrews 11.1 1, and our definition is how we define hope. See, as Christians, the word hope used in the New Testament is not something like, oh, man, I hope it happens. Like, man, I hope the Broncos win today, you know. <laughs> and it's, that's not hope. That's not hope as Christians. Hope as Christians is the rock-solid, absolute assurance that I have that though I have never seen Jesus face to face, I have trusted in him, and I know he died for me, and because of that, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to spend eternity with him. I cannot, I cannot duplicate creation. 
But I know it happened, just as the Bible says. I, I have no doubt that's faith. That's hope. The difference in our hope is their hope really is that. Man, I hope I'm right. Because if I'm not, and they're right, I'm in big trouble. And they are. George Wald, and I know I've read this quote before, but it bears repeating. 1971, won the Nobel Prize. Biologist. This is quoted from a publication, a science publication, where it was printed. He says, there are only two possible explanations as to how life arose. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution or supernatural creative act of God. There is no other possibility. Those two, that's it. Spontaneous generation, evolution, or creative act of God. That's it. He goes on to say, spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. But that leaves us with only one other possibility, that life came as a supernatural act of creation of God, but I can't accept that philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation leading to evolution. It's their choice. It's their choice. God has even made it evident to them in their own experiments, yet they said, I refuse to believe that. Why? Again, because that means I'm accountable to that God, and I'm going to have to answer for the sin in my life. Exactly what Peter said. Well, verse 7 he continues on in, in, in talking to us about what is going to happen. He says, verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He talked about in verse 6 that the God, God destroyed the earth one time with water. He flooded the entire earth. This time he's going to destroy the earth by fire. This, this does tell us that they have one thing right global warming. It hasn't happened yet, and it doesn't happen as they say it is. It's going to happen in a moment. It's just whoosh, destroyed by fire. God will judge the earth. But verse 8 says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And again, I love it. Just hear Peter's heart here. He's saying, guys, I get it. I understand. This is going to happen. Because of their mocking and also because of our waiting, we have a tendency in our flesh to start questioning, even to start doubting. And he said, guys, don't do that. Let me, let, me, let me let you in on something. And I love this. Beloved, love you guys, so listen. He says, don't be lanthano. We talked about that a minute ago. That's the word that was used to describe them, deliberately ignorant. He's saying, don't be ignorant of this fact. Don't, don't push this away. He says, understand, guys. God is in charge of time. We are on God's timetable. Let me ask you a question, a little, little trivia for you, and you can look if you're fast enough. To, 
Genesis 1.1. What does it tell us God created first? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you would probably all check that on a multiple choice question, right? You'd be wrong. What does Genesis 1.1 tell us he created first? Look at the first three words. In the beginning, God created time first. See, before the beginning, there was no time. God exists outside of time. He's not bound by it. He's not manipulated by it. He controls it completely. As a matter of fact, there's a couple instances where he stops it, backs it up. Guys, I love this. He's telling us, don't be caught up in their manipulation. Don't be caught up in their mocking. Don't be caught up in, in, in your mind in these things because the stuff that we look at around us, God's not bound by that. Don't, don't get caught up in your timetable, your understanding, because God exists way above that. He's way bigger than that. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Guys, God exists, again, in a, re, in, in a realm that we can't understand because our minds are bound by time. He's not. And I love this. He says, guys, a thousand years is like a day to God. So he's been gone a little over 2,000 years. It's just a long weekend. <laughs> and, and, and he's coming back. Now, I, I know we, we look at this, and I know this is Peter's point, but I want to take a step out of Peter here for just a second. And look at also something that I, I think is really cool in, in what he's saying here. He says a thousand years is like a day. And that's, that's the point he's trying to make is that this time isn't long to God. Long to us, not long to him. But look, he also flips it around. He says a day is like a thousand years. Anybody ever have a really long day? <laughs> I mean, if, a really long day. Like you're thinking, man, is this day ever going to end? Well, today, a day to God is like a thousand years. I did the math. That means every second is like 101 hours. Now, what's my point? My point, again, is God's not bound by time. And he has plenty of time for every one of your problems, every one of your situations, everything that you go through, everything. He's not bound by that. He's not bound by the things that we bind ourselves up in. No problem that we face is too big for him. No problem that we face is too little for him. I don't want to waste any of God's time. This will only take a minute. Well, he's got every second 101 hours to take care of your problem. <laughs> now, please understand, I'm going to talk about this in a second. This is only an illustration. He's not really literally meaning that a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day because people have taken this and tried to predict things and tried to point to other stuff. Peter is illustrating something here. But what he's trying to get, his main point is, guys, God hasn't come back, hasn't delayed his return because he's lollygagging. <laughs> he's delayed his return because he's long-suffering. He's patient towards us. He's patient towards those who have not come to him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. 
Ezekiel 18 tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it gave him no pleasure. When he destroyed the world by flood, it gave him no pleasure. And when he destroys the world by fire, it will give him no pleasure. He wants all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our, our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. That's his heart. That's what he wants. And that is why he has delayed his coming. He's done everything. Everything. But he won't force it on anyone. He continues the illustration in verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief at night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with, with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Again, Peter is using this and we need to understand as we transition now into verse 11, he's using this illustration not for literal calculation because people have done that. They've said, okay, well, if a day is a thousand years, a thousand years, day, carry the two, down, he's coming back this date. That's not at all. Peter said, no, that's, that's not it. This is an illustration. It's not for literal calculation, but it is for life calibration. He says, because of this, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. The day of the Lord, he says, guys, this is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day, not a 24-hour literal day, but a time. A time is coming. And every time the day of the Lord is used in Old Testament prophecy that has already been fulfilled and this prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, the day of the Lord always refers to a time of judgment, a time of wrath, God's wrath being poured out on a people, on a, on a country, a, God's wrath being poured out. And what Peter is pointing to here, the day of the Lord, begins with a very important event that we as Christians are all waiting for, and that's the rapture of the church. That's what will start the day of the Lord. Why? Because it tells us, remember last week, verse, chapter 2, verse 9, that God knows how to rescue the godly. So before he pours out his wrath on the world, he's going to take his church up first. The moment when Jesus comes into the clouds and he calls us all up and, and we are raptured away to join him in the sky before the next event in the day of the Lord, which is the seven-year tribulation period where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. At the end of that period, Jesus returns us with him then to rule and reign with him for a thousand-year period of time, at the end of which comes what Peter is talking about here, the earth being destroyed by fire. That is what's happening. That is what's ahead on the prophetic calendar. Again, the next thing, us being called up. And he's talking about it here, that it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come unannounced. It's going it's to come unexpectedly. There will be people caught off guard, and Peter is saying, don't be caught off guard. It could happen at any moment. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen this week. It could happen before we're done here. Any moment. 
And he says, guys, our lives need to be lined up with this, measured together with this, calibrated to this fact. And he says that our lives should be marked with holy conduct and godliness. Our actions and our attitudes should line up with that. What we're saying, what do you want to be saying? What do you want to be doing when Jesus calls us up? What do you want to be watching? (laughs) What do you want to be thinking? And here's another one. What do you want to be motivated by? Because you can fool me. You can fool everybody else in this room. But you can't fool God as to why you're doing certain things. Your motivation. Our, our actions and our attitudes. Peter is saying it can happen at any moment. Be careful. Living, living in a certain way. It should line up with that. He says, looking for his coming. Are we looking? Are we, are we looking for his coming? And if we are, does our life represent that profession? Do others look around and say, man, he's living like he's looking for Jesus to come back. And I don't mean walking around like this. I mean our lives actively. But notice he says something interesting. He says not only looking for, but he says and hastening his coming. And that's an interesting word. It has a couple of meanings, and I believe both of them fit very neatly into the, into the passage. Which one he meant, I don't know. He might even mean both because they kind of fit into each other. The first one would mean to earnestly desire. And it fits in there if you are looking for and earnestly desiring the day of the Lord, passionately desiring it. I mean, I, there's a lot of things in our lives that we're passionate about, that we're excited about, that we can't wait for. I gotta tell you, I am anxiously looking forward to getting home this afternoon, turning on the DVR and watching the recorded football game today. Which, by the way, I am recording, so as you find the score out today, do not text me. But I'm anxiously looking forward to that. But I got to tell you, if God would choose to come back before kickoff, praise Jesus. I I could care less about the football game. earnestly desiring. I I want Jesus to come back more than I want anything else other than any of you who do not know Jesus yet that you do that today. So if he does come back, you go with us. But earnestly desiring that, does that show in our lives? And if it does, if we are earnestly desiring his return, I think it kind of flows into the second meaning of this word, and that's to do something to make it happen, (laughs) To, to, to hasten it. to to help the process along. By the way, again, God, it's not not contingent on us, but he chooses to use us in this whole thing. And his word tells us in Romans 11.25, it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. Again, the next event on the the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. It's not going to happen until the church is complete. That means the last one accepts him before the event. And again, we don't know how many that is. We don't know who that is. But let me ask you, how cool would it be if you were the one who got to witness to that one? As soon as they say the prayer, bam, we go. How cool would that be? Do our lives reflect the fact that we truly believe that this is coming? Verse 13 But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth. So not only are the old ones going to be destroyed, there's a new heaven and a new earth coming after that in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, 
in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. This new heaven, this new earth is coming. Just as rock solid as this one is going to be destroyed because of sin, the rock solid is that the new one is going to be created for us. The promise is made and the, prom- the promisor is faithful. And I love this. It's where righteousness dwells. No more sin, no more suffering, no more pain. Righteousness dwells according to his promise. And he says, according to this, we're looking for that. And again, I ask the question, are we? Are we living with an eternal perspective? That all of this stuff going on around us is temporary, that's eternal. That's where we're going to spend eternity. Guys, this is, this is really cool stuff. We know the ending. Peter's telling us, laying it out for us. Revelation gives it clearly to us. We know the ending. We know the ending of the story. Now, that's really bad for family movie night <laughs> and your little brother telling you that. You know, it's, it, that doesn't work, but it's awesome for life. It's awesome to know the ending, isn't it? And if you haven't already, I give you permission right now, you can go ahead and read ahead. Because Revelation, the end of Revelation, 20, 21, 22 chapters, tells it. Read it. We know it. The promise is coming, guys. We're to be diligent, to be found in him in peace, spotless, blameless, as he's already covered. Again, chapter, chapter 1, read it again. Verses 1 through 11. Be diligent in this. This is how we're to be living. We won't stumble. Tells us if we do these things, we will never stumble, remember? But also, if we're doing those things, that means when he comes, we'll, we'll be, when he, he'll find us in peace. He'll find us blameless. Don't we all want that? Well, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He closes out here again. Guys, reiterating, coming back again, repeating it. Guys, don't. Don't fall away. Don't be sucked in. Don't fall from your own steadfastness is what he's saying by listening to these knuckleheads. Stay in the word of God. Stay in the truth of God. He gives us three things here in these closing verses. Be guarding, be growing, be glorifying. Be guarding your minds. Don't let the junk in. Recognize it for what it is. Deception lies. Reject it. Be growing in grace and knowledge. And be glorifying our king. Let our life be a, be a constant state of glorifying our Lord and our Savior. Clear marching orders for us as believers. But as we close this, this morning, I want to talk to those of you that are here this morning who have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Who have never given your life to him. Have never have never trusted in him for salvation, but also made him Lord of your life. You've bought into the lies of the world. You've, 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 you've done this. I need you to understand something. He's brought you here this morning for a reason. He wants you to hear this. Because he tells us, as we've already read, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Destruction is coming. 
the world will be destroyed. And those who reject him will spend eternity in hell facing his wrath forever. And if you think it's just going to be a party there with all of your friends, you're mistaken. It will be torment and loneliness beyond anything you could ever imagine, and it's eternal. But God takes no pleasure in sending anyone there. It's a choice people make to go there. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient towards you. He has brought you here today to hear the truth of his word. He's patient towards you. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you this morning to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This world was created by a holy God. And our sin has separated us from the love of God because we have outright and totally rejected him. And there's nothing that we can do to bridge that gap. Jesus, God himself, knew that fact. He stepped out of heaven. He lived a perfect, sinless life in our place, and then he substituted that perfect, sinless life on the cross for our sinful life. The Bible tells us that he became sin. And in trusting in him, giving our lives to him, we become his righteousness. That's not a fairy tale. That's concrete fact. And you know I'm speaking the truth right now because there's something happening inside of you. I can't describe it, but everyone in this room has felt it at one time or another, and that's the Holy Spirit confirming inside of you. It tells us Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Maybe, maybe you are here and you've heard these things before and you, you haven't taken that step of faith because you feel that if you do and you lay your life before the Lord, he's gonna come down upon you, he's gonna beat on you, he's gonna punish you. Understand this. The reason he came was to take your punishment. He's already done that. He will have compassion on you. And maybe, maybe you're here and you're saying, well, you have no idea how sinful my life has been. You don't, you don't, you don't want to know. You're right, I don't. But Jesus already does. And it tells us in the verse we just read that he will abundantly pardon. That means he will wipe it all away, abundantly. Not just barely, abundantly. You've abundantly sinned, so have we all. He has abundantly pardoned. But here's the interesting thing about a pardon, and this is vital you understand this. A pardon must be received. George Wilson, back in 1830, robbed a U.S. mail carrier, and in that process, he killed him. That is a federal offense, and it required the death penalty. 
he was convicted of his crime and sentenced to hang. George Wilson had some influential friends, and they went to then-President Andrew Jackson, and they pled for a pardon for George Wilson. And remarkably, the president, Andrew Jackson, granted that pardon. All of the charges that brought the death penalty to George were dropped. However, he refused the pardon. Amazingly, he refused the pardon. The Supreme Court even stepped in and tried to rule on it, but the Supreme Court could not force George Wilson to take the pardon. So he died as scheduled on his execution date. Amazing seems ridiculous, but if you are here this morning and you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never received the full pardon that he has for you, you stand just like George Wilson. You stand convicted of of crime, of treason against a holy and righteous God. That sentence has been handed down. The wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal death, separated from his love, facing his wrath forever. But you have a very influential friend, and his name is Jesus. And he lived that perfect life, and he died that sacrificial death in your place. And he's offering you the pardon. It's a free gift, but you have to receive it. The Bible tells us that there's a great feast that God is preparing, the great supper. And in the parable, it tells us, though, that the the Lord eventually closes the doors, and it'll be too late then. The doors are closing. Don't be left out. The invitation is open here today. And you know I'm speaking the truth because, again, the Holy Spirit is prompting you right now. So I would like to ask all all of us this morning, now, if we would just bow our heads in prayer. And if that is you, if I'm speaking to you today and you know you know that if you were to die right now, you, you, you don't have any idea what would end up. You don't, you don't know, but you want to have that assurance. You know that you've been running from God. You know that you've been buying into the lies, but you want to get that taken care of right now. I ask if that is you, if you would just simply raise your hand, and I'd like to acknowledge you and, and pray with you. Anyone? Yes. Bam, right up front. Anyone else? Anyone else this morning that says, I want that? Yes, I see you in the back. Yes, I see you, ma'am, over here. Yes, up front here. God bless you. God bless you. Yes, over here on the side. Praise the Lord. Yes, I see you. God bless you. I would like to ask right now that those of you that have your hands raised and say, I want to invite Jesus into my life. I want to make him Lord of my life. Would you please now stand? Stand right where you are. And I would like to ask those, yes, praise God. And I would like to ask those that are standing, those that are seated around those that are standing right now, would you also stand? Because they are now part of our family. And would you, would you just place your hands on their shoulder maybe? And let's, let's join in prayer together. If that is you and you want to give your life to Jesus today, you just, in your heart right now, you are responding to something that the Holy Spirit is doing in you right now. And you just say, Jesus, I don't understand everything that, that has been said today, but I understand I am a sinner. And I have, I have sinned against you. And, and I know I need you. I know that I can't fix this myself, so I trust you now. 
I give you my life. I give you my eternity. Fill me with with joy unspeakable now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength to walk in your way. Lord, I give you my life. I repent of my sin. I confess my sin now. I agree with you that the way I've been living is not honoring you. It has sinned against you. I turn from that and I turn to you, Jesus. And I, I embrace you. I make you Lord of my life. Oh, and for the rest of us, Lord, we ask that you move in a powerful way in our lives. That the evidence that that it would be to those around us, they would see us and know that we are different because we so look forward to your return. Lord, that our lives would be marked by holy conduct and godliness, that we would be looking for your coming, hastening it, Lord, eagerly, (laughs) eagerly desiring your return. Lord, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you have done here today. Jesus, we give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise Jesus. I'd like to ask if you all now would stand. I would like to ask everyone here, though, please do not leave yet. Service isn't over. For those of you who stood up today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we have a packet for you. I hope you've already received it. But if you have that, if you did that, would you please um, start making your way to the back? We have a prayer room. We'd like to just talk with you for a minute or two and and explain a couple of things with you, pray with you. If you would, nobody leave so we can allow them to, to get out. And also, if you need prayer for any other reason, we have moved our prayer room, by the way. I forgot to tell you that earlier. It's down the hallway past the bathrooms, first door on the left. If you need prayer after the service, please head that direction. God bless you today. Let's sing to the Lord.